0: Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is he?
0: Yeah, doing? I don't. He's a kid. What does I, he know? <laughs> I don't think. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say I'm Gucci.
1: <laughs> wow. um, you heard it here live today on Privacy Please. Uh, i have heard the term fire that's fire yeah is that with a y um, and r and i and a, i don't know but yeah. i do
0: find I, I i sound i feel weird when i i try to say it um, when you, when you try, not you, that old you feel but... like
1: steve Buscemi with the, the skateboard and the hat <laughs> how do you do fellow <laughs> kids how do you do?
0: That's, a, that's a great meme how do you do um <laughs> well uh let's go ahead and let's go ahead and jump this uh let's jump into this All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy, Please. I am your co-host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, my other co-host, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how are you doing this week? Long long time to talk.
1: It's been a little while. It's been a little while indeed. I'm well. Um, It's good to see you. Good to hear from you. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. Uh, Trucking along. It's that day. It's been good. It's that day. It's Friday Eve, baby. It's Friday Eve. It is Friday Eve, and
0: uh, luckily, we have tomorrow off and a long weekend and Monday off. Thanks for the holidays, so... Well, super excited about that.
1: By the time our listeners listen to this, they will have been back from that holiday, and some of them will be going. Wait a second, I didn't get, I didn't get four days That's off. That's true. <laughs> I tell that you, it's very true. I'll tell you, we have a guest Speaking of four days off, I'm probably gonna, I'm gonna put a pin in that because I got some questions to ask you about days off and put you in the, in the hot seat in the way I don't normally. Largely because you seem to be a serial entrepreneur. I love it. I love serial entrepreneurship, which means that you, unlike most, have a unique opportunity to stare different things so, so we're going to talk about that but i think the most important thing is we should probably introduce that person
0: mm-hmm. yeah so today we have uh, john Wenner. he is the ceo of kaizen uh john thank you so much for coming on man we're really really excited to talk with you thank you cameron
2: gabe stoked to be here with you guys
1: right on right on john look we start the show pretty much the way we always do with our guests with one very basic question tell us about yourself awesome
2: well thank you so much for having me here today um as you said my name is john my family is from new york and i grew up in palm beach gardens florida Uh, growing up i had two major passions one being sports and the second being entrepreneurship and since i was 13 i've worked at the intersection of technology and humanity so i've founded and served as the ceo of six different companies Uh, in my last company we helped everyone from startups to fortune 100 giants grow and we saw the incredible potential of both intelligent automation and unified data and the value that it can deliver for everyone uh, in the business as well as the customers. Um, however, we also noticed that only the biggest companies could really afford to take advantage of the technology. And even many times they were struggling. So we ended up building my current company, Kaizen, and our digital assistant, Zoe, to help companies grow faster, help team members save time and help. Uh,
1: help customers get more amazing experiences. That's awesome. How many companies have you founded, John? I'm looking at the list here and I'm not counting because it's like, eh, it's arithmetic and I don't do that in public. So, uh, yeah, not a good idea. This is my sixth. Sixth. What gave, what gave you the bug? Was it the parents? Yeah. So, um,
2: my dad's a neurologist and there were two things that he really wanted to improve, um, you know, kind of with his children. And, uh, the first was that he wanted us to learn how to golf because he felt that he missed opportunities in business from, from not knowing how to golf. And the second was he really felt that it took a long time for him to learn business. Um, you know, medical school doesn't have any of those classes. And so he really, from the time that I was extremely young, was encouraging me to learn about entrepreneurship and you know we would play this game called cash flow um which had like stock trading and stuff like that it was a board game and so he was always encouraging that side of me um you know and and always would hand me books and things so um that kind of started it and then i just got really lucky um in 2002 which is when i started my first company um computers were just coming out and becoming more mainstream in the home And I grew up in a part of the country where a lot of people have retired to. And my grandparents actually lived a mile down the road. And um, my grandmother was having an issue with her computer, which I helped her fix. And uh, she was president of the Italian club in our local community, very proud Sicilian. And the next day, um, my mom picked me up from school. She goes, John, you're never going to believe what happened. I said, what? She said, there's over 40 voicemails of people wanting you to come fix their computer. And so I'm pretty sure that my grandma had told everyone in both Italian and English that I had fixed her computer and since they were all emailing each other they'd all gotten the same virus. And so um I'm in business. <laughs> yeah, it's funny actually. Um and so I uh I was riding my bike around and uh, and then eventually I started charging cuz it had gotten so crazy that there's just so many people needed help and I hired my first uh, employee a couple months later, and that's Scott Turner at Total Genius, and he's actually my co-founder in almost all the companies we've started, as well as uh, Kaizen. So
1: only one, only one, only one lesson, only one lesson that you can you can share with the audience from all of those startups. Just the one. What is it?
2: People-centric. Um, you know, it's all about the people. Um, When you're starting a business, you have to decide which people are you going to serve, which people are you going to work with and which people are you going to have come, you know, and work with you with that customer base. And so I think that's what you have to get really passionate about um, and be interested in because we spend a lot of time working. So the people that you're
1: around, that you're working with and that you're working for are are so important. Do you work five days a week? That was the, that was the, I'm going to put you on the spot question. Or did, did have you moved to four four days? Did you did you did you embrace the four day work week? Um, well, the funny
2: thing about that is we're working on some really interesting developments where we actually do believe a twenty five hour work week, you know, across four days is inevitable, um, and that we think that's going to be happening really soon. Um, and obviously, you're seeing companies move to a four day work week today. Um, we're still in the startup stage. Um, I would say a five day week is a great week. Uh, five and a half to six day week is pretty standard right now, but that's just because of the stage that we're in and, and the excitement that we have for that.
1: No, I understand that startup startup life is, is usually an eight day work week. Um, although I do believe there's ways to do it quite frankly in fewer than eight, but you'd be right in that in fewer than four might be, might be challenging. Fewer than five is often challenging at, at the startup stage for certain. Um, but I guess that's also uh, it, it, it depends. I want, to, I want to tie a couple of threads together here. Very people-centric. I appreciate the hell out of that. Your organizations also seem to be mindful of how people impact other things around them. I'll just use that as a big umbrella phrase, uh, uh, a paraphrase of other things you say. You're, you're, I see you nodding, so I, I'll take that. I, I didn't misquote you um, or misparaphrase you. Um, and you mentioned that your current organization pulls a lot of data points about people. So together, when we talk about privacy, we always talk about making it personal, bringing it back down to that people level, making it people centric because it has to be if there's the, if that empathy doesn't exist in, in the wires, literally in the wires, and there's no real way to to code empathy into the wires, of course. But if that empathy doesn't exist in the organization and the people, et cetera, um, that tends to lead to a lot of technology and business choices that are just bad for privacy, bad for privacy. Full stop, right? Um, at least the bad security decisions also, but at least security decisions, oftentimes there's a there is an inertia that will create positive change because, you know, compliance and uh, bad guys. Privacy is seen as similar inertia too, mostly in the compliance side of things. But how do those things intersect in your technology world, right? Like how do you take that people-centric, thing that is just part of John's DNA? And how do you embed that into the DNA of your organization so that y- y- you are treating that data with, uh, with empathy?
2: Definitely. Great question. I think it comes down to what is the purpose of a business to begin with? And here at Kaizen, we believe that businesses can be among the you know, ultimate forces for good. And we think, you know, when it comes to the relationship that a business has with its customers, um, what is the role for them to take customers from where they are today and to help them either have more joy and happiness in their life or solve a problem or challenge or pain that they're having? And to me, that's, you know, the perfection of business. That's what businesses and organizations are supposed to do. And if that relationship is working properly, then businesses using data as their customers have allowed them to, as their customers have given them access to it in order to provide a better experience to serve them better is something that I think makes the human experience better um, for all of us on the planet. So that's the driving belief that we have here
0: uh, around that. What are the, what are the core values for your company? What do you have anything that kind of stands out or a message?
2: yeah, definitely. So we have four core values here at Kaizen. Um, the first is being customer obsessed um, and really taking our customers' challenges on as our own. Um coming from the background of starting you know multiple companies um, and wishing and that I had partners throughout those different processes, working with organizations that really combine you know great products and great service, that was something we wanted to have as key for us. Um, Relentlessly excellent is the second. And so from the standard of just maintaining a very high bar, obviously the name of our company is inspired by the Japanese philosophy Kaizen of continuous and never ending improvement. Yes. And so we removed the A so we could buy the dot com. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, so relentlessly excellent. Um, Fiercely kind is the third. So really, you know, like we said, being a force for good, treating people with kindness, um, you know, and doing the right thing uh, is super important, I think, as we build an organization and as that scales. And then, you know, finally, uh, amazingly fun is our last core value, right? So it's like, look, we got to have fun. That's something you guys have a ton of fun on this podcast. So I think that resonates. Um, but look, you know, we all put a lot of time into what we do and why not have a ton of fun in the process? So those are our big things. Yeah. I want to hear more about zoe
1: Yes. who is zoe Zoe. So. who is zoe
2: <laughs> zoe zoe you know whoever you want him zoe him to be. zoe is it zoe um, is it zoe well it depends actually what part of the world we're talking about so here in the united states she mostly gets called zoe but in europe uh in asia she mostly gets called zoe um which is interesting so either way whatever people would like um since this is i think mostly u.s based call her zoe Um, So yeah, Zoe was basically the idea that how do we help organizations action on all of the data that they have? How do we use automation and make it easy for people to save time, whether you're an individual contributor on the front lines, whether you're a manager, whether you're an executive? And so when we built out this platform, it started with the idea of building a data platform that could truly ingest all of the organization's information not just the customer data but the you know purchase data and the expense data to create a full spectrum warehouse and then build zoe on top of it as an automation engine to easily in a no-code fashion action on that data and build out your journeys and workflows
1: so is zoe the one that goes on the gambas the does zoe does zoe go right down to where the work is getting done and, and kind of collect that data and pull it all together is that i'm, I'm trying to tie you guys in uh name there yeah, directly to, to that activity it, 100%. Sounds, it sounds interesting how did you how did you come across this problem forget how you you got to the solution part of this but how did you come across this problem When's the first time you encountered the problem that gave birth to the idea that would become kaizen
2: yeah so um my previous company was called the scientific marketing group uh we started it in 2010 mainly at the beginning we were a marketing consulting uh, firm but then we grew into management consulting as well pretty naturally and what we saw was kind of what's happened to everyone is the we call it like the great app explosion where all of us as organizations there you know went from having a few pieces of technology to oftentimes 50 or more and large organizations you know have hundreds of applications that they use and it got to a point where there was a specialized application for each little problem um, uh, that an organization could have or each team. But the problem was there was nothing tying it all together. And because of that, we saw huge um, waste of time of people doing the same thing in the organization, but in slightly different teams. Um, we saw people constantly looking for data that they needed, didn't have access to what they needed. We saw customers having poor experiences. Uh, marketing and sales teams couldn't track uh, and intelligently follow up as much as they wanted. And so it just was born out of seeing this explosion of tools and us sitting here saying how do we help companies grow faster and seeing the pain that people were having with these complex you know uh, technology stacks? And so we worked with over 200 different platforms for our customers certified on everything, you know, did the multi-million dollar enterprise deployments on the Salesforces and the oracles. We wrote in hundreds of pages of feature requests and um, ultimately didn't see that like the the tools from the 1990s to the late 2000s, you know, were really going to meet what people needed moving forward. And so I turned to Scott, you know, probably two years before we actually started working on Kaizen. And said, I think that someone new is going to have to come along and fix this. And that's kind of happens in technology, right? And there's always kind of that next group coming in. And so finally, I got pretty frustrated at the end of 2013. um, And the initial lines of what is now Kaizen started being written in January of 2014. And we kind of worked on it side by side, you know, with our customers as design partners. And then 2018, we officially launched Kaizen as its own standalone business.
0: That's awesome, yeah what what has been the most challenging thing uh, opening up in two thousand nine or eighteen two years later, you know we go through the pandemic challenge for everyone. Did you guys face some challenges in in terms of business alone, or did that actually help with with what you can actually provide? Did it help actually bring in more customers?
2: Yeah, I think the answer to that is yes. It brought in lots of new challenges and it was a tailwind towards technologies like ours. Um, From a challenge perspective, I think COVID is a personal challenge for everyone as well as a leadership challenge for everyone in the organization that has a team. It was such a time of uncertainty, such high stress. Um, We're a very young company at the time, you know, backed by investors and um, you know, you have to hit your targets to keep that money flowing in. Um, we fortunately ended up being able to keep everyone focused the, the first thing that we did was, you know, we called everyone together and said, Hey, this is going to change things. Let's make sure you're taken care of personally, make sure that your kids or parents are taken care of and kind of well set up. Cause I just believe that when you come from a health and family first foundation, you make sure that that's taken care of. That's what you can build on top of. Um, So, and we're still seeing the challenges of COVID today, right? With people with the return to office and, um, you know, how are organizations managing that? And we haven't found our new normal, which is super exciting that we're getting to create that now and ask what really works best for us moving forward. And when we think about that new normal, that's what kind of created the opportunity for us with remote work, having technology that people can collaborate on and, and bring data together is more important than ever. And so, it really accelerated people's adoption of technology like ours. And, and that's been a big part of how we've gotten over 400,000 licenses sold, you know, since we launched last year.
1: Congratulations! Awesome. That is spectacular. My friend.
0: Thank mm-hmm. you. I want to go back a little bit to, cause it, it relates to me. I'm, you know, I, I work with a lot of customers and, I think the biggest thing that in, in in any industry when it comes to helping customers is, is having empathy, not forgetting to have that empathy, which really ties well into data privacy as a whole and what it means. Because, you know, I, I guess I just want to get your take on when you hear the term security and privacy, you know, wh- what do they mean to you personally? Have you ever experienced you know, getting on a personal level, have you ever experienced anything personal that has affected your life or someone around you that kind of made you more passionate about privacy as a whole?
2: Yeah, um, two massive words, extremely important. So let's start with privacy, which to me is, is really on that personal level, right? And we have so many Um, things that are recording us today that are collecting data on us today. It's hard to feel in control of kind of what's happening with all of our data and all of our personal experiences. Um, having a relationship with the companies that have that data and being able to manage that data and say, Hey, I don't want you to use that. Or I do want you to use that. Or, Hey, wait, how did you collect that? I think that's a a conversation that's really going to be taking off. Um, it's already huge today, but it's going to grow even more over the coming years. Um, right. For me, um, you know, I think that I've, I've seen some stuff up close and personal with family members where certain things became public that, that shouldn't have, and that there was some violation of privacy there. And um, that's something that I obviously should never happen. And um, that, that's kind of my thoughts on privacy. As far as security, security has so many different layers. Um, You know, obviously we have the IT and data security, which is critical for everyone in our industry, you know, making sure that there's never a breach, uh, that the permissions are correct, that people have access to the right tools and that we keep bad actors out. Um, And then I think security means a lot more to me as well from the point of view of just being a, you know, business executive, Uh, the security of our team, right, and the relationship that we have with our team. Um, you know, right now you hear a lot about the great resignation and I heard once years ago from one of my mentors that the most valuable part of your business walks, we'll say in and out of the doors every day or signs on and off of the computer every day. And so making sure that you have a strong relationship and secure relationships with them as well as your customers and, you know, kind of your competitive positioning and competitive security. So two giant words, um, that are critical to,
1: to every business and, and person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd agree with you. Um, the great resignation. That's a tough one. The thing that I find worrying and challenging, bringing it up on another screen, I don't know if you saw it or if you pay attention, maybe, maybe not, but um, Y Combinator, one of the uh, startup accelerators, you might be familiar. You've, you've been bleeding startup blood for long enough that you, I'm certain <laughs> you're, you're familiar with that. They sent yeah. a letter to all of their startups. Um, Last week, the week before, last week, about a day or two after Uber sent that letter internally to all their employees. And basically what they're both signaling, and forget signaling, um, like Uber was signaling something, like YC just came out and said it. Things are tightening. Investments are tightening for, for startups in particular. You've been through this, let's see, 2002. So what do you got? You got like two downturns under your belt as a startup uh, partner? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What advice do you have for the folks that are listening in? I think that it's
2: our job to build value and to build great companies. And I think that over the past two years, we have seen some really, really high numbers and multiples in the news where people are getting 100x and beyond um, you know, where they were going to be you know, six months or a year from now. And I do think that that market overheated a little bit and, you know, it was great for companies to be able to access that cheap capital, frankly. And we may see some down rounds in the coming months and years, but valuations are still pretty great historically. I think fundamentally if you're building a business and the way that we think about it is, you know, you're focused on building a great team, building a great product and building value for your customers. And if you do that, and you know i believe you will be successful um and obviously you want to make sure the math's working and you're not being too inefficient obviously years ago we had the background with we work and uber where they were just buying growth at all costs and one of the things that we've done historically and our platform does is help people understand you know what is your actual customer acquisition cost what is your customer lifetime value because business is as simple as those two numbers right and you can add in what's the time to get paid back? You know, what's your customer acquisition payback? And if you understand those three things, you're going to be able to be extremely successful in business. So I think that the media in general can overreact when things are good, they say, oh my God, it's too good. And when things are maybe a little more challenging, it's, oh my God, it's doom and gloom. I think this is. One of the most amazing times to be in business and to be building technology companies and to be in the space that we're in. Um, I think a lot of the listeners here are building the future of what we're going to have as a species. And that's incredibly exciting. Will things potentially be a little tighter? Yes, especially for the companies that were benefiting by the super high valuations before. But Mm -hmm. venture capital companies have never had as much money as they have today. They're going to need to be putting that into great companies. So, stay focused, do your job, you know, and uh, and build something great would be
1: my my thoughts. I can almost build something great now. Now, there's um, is that did you just quote YC on that one? I think you I think you backdoored that one on me. Build something, no, build something people want. Build something people want. That's Paul Grant. Build something people want. Build things people want. Um. I can almost see the 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 furry feathers growing on those venture capitalists though, as they turn into vultures and things kind of go down, which if I, <laughs> if I pull this back, here's what's going to happen. Because I, too, have been through, um, um, been through my fair share of downturns. I've been through my fair share of VC fire sales. But the first time I went through it, it was it was like hardware. It was all hardware. It was right around when you built your first company, right? Like So somewhere around mm-hmm. 2002 um, – was, was at that point. And it was good for us because we were able to acquire like godly amounts of, of of servers and other resources, you name it, like infrastructure at ridiculous cost that allowed us to grow and scale. Um, where today, that kind of infrastructure, well, you get that by swiping your credit card at Linode or DigitalOcean. And yes, I did not mention any of, of the, the hyperscale vendors because they get enough publicity of their own. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. Your IaaS and PaaS providers, right? Like, so we live in a data economy and this is where the privacy part of it really comes into play. This economy will contract and there will most certainly be vulture capitalists that are on the lookout for assets. And there are a lot of companies who their primary asset is data. I'd love to kind of get your, your take on, on whether or not you see that as, as a potential for someone like for, for an organization like yourself to do good with that kind of data Um and what can you do with it? Because I already know all the bad that can and will happen with it. But I, I'd like to understand, like, if you had the opportunity to enrich your customer's data even further, like, like, just know that there's lots more data out there that you can help your customers with. And and Zoe apparently loves data. Like, she she takes all that, she puts it together. Like, is is, is that does that represent at least a partial opportunity?
2: That's interesting. Um, a lot of venture capitalists do specialize in uh, data, and they have a lot of conversations with us about. You know, how are companies using it and, and where are there more opportunities in the future? And there are a lot of people thinking extremely strategically about the question that you just asked. Um, w- the way that we handle this is we are a steward for our customers' data, and they own the data. We promise them that we're not going to do anything with it. It's between them and their customers, and that's critical to the way that we believe we keep our interests aligned. Um, with that said, we work with third party providers that h- provide enrichment services to help feed Zoe with more data as you said um, and I think that there there will be a lot of um, a lot more mergers and acquisitions in that space and we're kind of already seeing it I think there's been three or four in the past you know four weeks um, so yeah I, I think you're correct in, in assessing that opportunity there
0: so <clears throat> I'm curious to go back again a little bit with Kaizen when, when you first started it and you were building things out, what was the first thing that you tackled when it came to building a program for security and privacy? What, let's just say you have a hundred dollar budget. It's stupid. It doesn't like, obviously it's not realistic, but let's just say, let's go back and you're building that out. Where would you start with Kaizen, what, what would be the first thing that would be the most important thing to add to that? Those, those programs.
2: Yeah. Um, so two questions in that, if I had a hundred dollars and where did we start? Um, so if I mm-hmm. had a hundred dollars, the, the first thing that I would do is, is start taking some action to, to get more than a hundred dollars.
1: <laughs> and, um, looking like a man who started six
2: companies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, tangibly on that. I would, uh, spend, let's call it 20 ish bucks on, uh, the book, how to win friends and influence people. So I can influence the people around me uh, a little bit better on how important this is. I would also buy, um, you know, one of the top books on security to kind of, uh, start educating me some more on some, some quick go to market actions here. And the third thing that I do is I'd reach out to some of the, um, you know, companies that provide like virtual chief security officers um, or different kind of uh, products in the security sphere uh, and go through their sales processes. I think you can learn an incredible amount for free by going through the sales process about what you need and proper companies will help you develop the business case that you need to get the budget that you need um, Mm. to, to get, you know, that product adopted into your company. Now, if you're starting a company or if you're extremely early stage, one of the things that we emphasized and that we looked for in our earliest engineers was people that were super interested in security, people that were interested in you know uh, finding bugs, finding holes. Um, you know, you'll find that certain people are just naturally they take to this stuff, and so we found it extremely essential to bring on early individual engineers and early leadership that had a background in that because of the importance of security and what we do. And so that's, um, you know, kind of the approach that we've taken here and that we continue to emphasize as, as we grow.
0: Mm -hmm. After, after having, by the way, I like that answer. That's actually one of the first ones that went in that direction and, and that many different, like getting the books and then, uh, you know the way you guys went about it i i actually i like that if you go back to oh gosh now i just talked myself out of what i was just thinking <laughs> you guys do that i do that all the time absolutely my brain my brain's going all over the place i just have so many questions for you gabe if
1: you got something while i'm thinking of it because i really just went blank no, that's all right. It happens to be all the time. I've got a lot of questions, but I'm going to switch gears on you. Um, I'm going to go back to kind of how you get to problem solving. Um, yes, it's a data and security show, but uh, you touched on something there that I thought was also very interesting. Hiring people that like to, can I put some words in your mouth? Would you call them hackers? And I don't just mean like they break into things, but like in the original traditional sense of the word hackers, namely they can see things and take them apart, right? Whether that's digital or physical or, you know, you know, film freakers, hardware hackers, software. As there's lots of types of hackers, but, but basically what you, what you described was a hack. Yeah. They, and a bit of data hacking even there um, as you see it, but but with boundaries and things around it. Um, any quality in particular in those folks that really stood out? I mean, obviously curiosity. You touched on curiosity, but what else?
2: Well, one of the things that we did with our earliest engineers um, was that we would give them a task to do that should be a two-hour task. And it would have incomplete and incorrect directions in the task. And we would look for people who would be able to figure out the areas that were incomplete, um, like be able to fill in the gaps, as well as correct the things that they were like, hey, you asked for this, but what you really should have asked for is that. (laughs) And that showed us a lot of interesting things about candidates when you go through kind of the process. Um, we also looked for people who participated in some of the, you know, bug finding, you know, stuff in the past and had made money kind of doing penetration testing and things like that. So that was something that we, we listened for very closely when we were having conversations.
1: So that's interesting. Um, I used to hire similar people. I used to hire similar people to be web application hackers in fact. Um, we'd get them from all over the place, line cooks, you name it, right? that we were also looking for very specifically different types of, um, of acumen and skill sets. And you'd be amazed. You can, you can legitimately, you can, a lot of things in, in technology are very teachable, um, but there are a lot of intangibles that aren't teachable.
0: I remember yeah. what I was going to say. <laughs> Before I forget, <laughs> out of, out of, uh, out of all the, the six, t- companies that you've created, uh, over the years, I got two questions for you. Which one was your, you, you can obviously say that the current one is your favorite, but what was your, what was your favorite, um, experience wise that made you feel like you accomplished, maybe you accomplished most of everything you wanted to in most of those companies and then moved to, you know, the next, the next, uh, gear in your, in your career. But what was the most exciting one for you and, and the one that the
1: most teachable one, Um, for you personally, I think that's, yeah. Remove Kaizen from that equation.
2: Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, there was such a natural build to the first one that I started, you know, which was called winter computing, um, because just computing and the internet grew so much and so much of what we do today ties its roots to that. And I had that one for, for like six years. Um, So that one was really enjoyable. It was also the first time that I hired and built a team. Um, And so I learned how to do that. The other two companies that I started before going to college um, were more of just seeing a clear opportunity. Oh, this is a funny one. So I started a business called One Stop Hurricane Shop because growing up in South Florida, we got hit by hurricanes. And we got hit by like three in a year, and we didn't have good flashlights. We didn't have like the best stuff, the best battery generators and fans and whatnot. I was like, "This is ridiculous." So, I created a consumer reports thing. Basically, we we spent over a hundred grand testing all these different products. We then warehouse the best ones. And, you know, we were ready to go. And so about 10% of the population is like what you'd call preppers. They're always preparing for something that could go wrong. And so what we did is I took this catalog and sent it around with my winter computing guys who were fixing computers. You just put it out. And if someone wanted to buy some stuff, we'd have someone else drop it off later. So the business did okay off of that. But I don't know if i can claim credit for this but we did effectively cancel hurricanes for about three years in <laughs> south florida ever since i started that business so ended up with a massive warehouse of stuff <laughs> that you know the majority of the population was going to buy it when the hurricane came um but uh, then it never came so that was that was a funny little thing and it taught me the the lesson of timing right and that really rammed timing home for me because it was like a lot of times i was getting lucky It was right place right time that business we still did okay but never hit the huge win that we wanted because of timing and that's that's the eighth wonder of the world to me so there's some quick stuff
1: yeah uh, on, on some
2: of the previous business awesome. yeah
1: having grown that's up super cool. in a place that get that gets hit by hurricanes a lot namely the caribbean we had a one-stop shop also but it, it was just a shitty gas station literally called one stop <laughs> it's like actually no i have to make three more stops after this place i don't know why you call yourself that this is not one stop at all <laughs> they're still three. being optimistic they are yeah, being they're still optimistic. in beta indeed
0: yeah. it reminds me of um what is it uh parks and rec ron swanson where he goes to he goes to the store it's called meat and stuff or something <laughs> it's he literally gets his his ground beef and and has all his other stuff that's funny
1: it's just funny Ron Swanson makes a surprise appearance on a Thursday privacy please He's <laughs> about right. I love Ron Swanson. Who doesn't? Um,
0: Harris. So, how do you feel about the current state of where we are with security and privacy? Obviously, privacy is growing. It's getting more and more relevant. Uh, relevant. 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 Wow. Um, and you know, it's it's yeah, it's building. You know, a community, uh, it's getting larger and larger. It's its great to see. Where, where do you think security and privacy are heading in the next couple of years? Do you, do you like the direction? Do you want to see something different?
2: Yeah, I think some of the major regulation around privacy, around people being able to control what information a company is collecting on them and be able to see their own record. I think that most companies don't really have a solution to that yet. Right, Because that would mean you need to have a data warehouse that then comp- their customers can go into and go through their own record. And so that's an area where we're doing a lot of work, where we're seeing a lot of really large companies try and go, hey, how are we going to solve this? Um, but all of the you know, sized companies are going to need to solve that problem, too. And right now, there's kind of been the regulation has come out and it's starting to go into effect or it's already in effect, depending on the countries. And the enforcement hasn't started to happen yet. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing to track over the coming years. From a security perspective, we're hearing more and more now, all of us about, you know, the, the ransom attacks, you know, where this, you know, small to midsize or company or a city or, you know, utilities even are, are being held hostage by not having things secure. So uh, I'm really intrigued by some of the beyond two-factor authentication stuff that that people are doing. Um, I know that there's some interesting like login approaches that people are trying to take moving forward. And so I think that's all going to be really intriguing. I think there's brilliant people and companies working on it. And um, I'm excited to see the evolution that happens from here. But it's uh, it's going to, as you said, more and more relevant, more and more important. Um, as, as our lives become more digital and technology Mm -hmm. controls, you know, and impacts more of what we do.
0: And I know, I know that you're really big on maybe wanting to explore, uh, more on like how, how data collection can be used positively for companies. I know that's something that you wanted to kind of touch on. Um, what do you mean by that? Can you kind of, can we dive into that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I
2: think that, you know, when we ask ourselves, what does our company do, right? We're meeting, you know, people at a certain point in their life or we're selling to businesses. We're meeting a business at a certain point in their growth curve. And we are helping them get from where they are and imagine them with like, here they are with a little smile on their face to, you know, further down the line with a bigger smile on their face. And then even further down the line with a beaming, you know, giant smile on Right. And that's how I like to think about how businesses should be serving, um, you know, their their customers and their stakeholders. And so I think when we ask the question of what problem are we solving, you know, for our customers and what is the next problem that they're going to have and how can I more quickly get them between where they are now and where they want to be? Um, You know, that could be a simple example in in retail, like someone wanting to understand, you know, like the places where we shop, they know our sizes, they know, you know, what clothes we wear, Um, they should know when something cool, like I'm not the biggest fashion guy, but if if they can send me some fashionable suggestions, I would appreciate that, right? You know, Mm -hmm. that are for me in my size available. Hey, do you want us to send it to you? You can try it on, right? That's an opportunity that's easy in the B2C segment.
1: Can I break Um, it down? I want to Absolutely. break. I want to break right in there. What are you willing to give up for that? Um,
2: well, they already have all of our data on what we purchased, <laughs> and so unless you're paying in cash, you know, uh, you know, we've I've, we've given up a lot of the information. They're just not using it as well as they could be using it. Um, and so I think that's a question that we all have to ask, right? Like when right. we use a social media, like when we sign on Facebook, you know, and we get to see. We don't you know, sign pictures.
1: on Facebook around here. I'm sorry, we don't do that around okay. here. <laughs> I
0: thought you were going to say
1: we're always signed in. <laughs>
0: ah, we're, sorry, that's, that's, right,
1: that's right. Never mind. Take it back. We're always signed in. We're always
2: signed in. That's funny. Um, but that question of of what are you willing to give up? It applies to every single service that we're using right now. Even our mm-hmm. cars. You know, you're agreeing to a data collection thing when you buy a new car in 2022. Where's that data going? You know, and yeah, I want the features of the car starting to drive itself. And, and what did I trade off on that? Right. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, businesses, and this is why all of us are, we have the ability to impact the culture of these big behemoth companies, right? When we're speaking to executives in those companies. And people say entrepreneurship is important, and it is extremely important. But also being an executive and being someone who cares in these large companies, it's helping say, hey, Let's make sure we're doing right by our customers, right? To drive forward this next evolution of capitalism, if you want to say, or just society, like we have that responsibility every day um, to make sure that the right decisions are being made. And I believe that, you know, transparency with the internet, the internet enables a new level of transparency than ever before. So people who are not doing this right, I believe we will detect that and we will say that's not okay. And consumers can vote with their dollars. They can vote with their attention. And that is super important where you choose to put your dollars and your attention in driving what happens next. So collectively, Mm. we have an incredible amount of of influence um, should we be intentional about it.
1: What do you – I don't know if you've observed the following, but – let me, let me share that I've observed the following and it's, it's readily observable by others. But um, you know, speaking of like big companies, you mentioned <clears throat> entrepreneurship being important, but also being CEOs of those big organizations equally being important. A lot of those organizations have embraced entrepreneurship and not in the sense that like, okay, business units can, should all run like their own you know, businesses. They've gone a step further. They literally have incubators inside of these organizations these days. Google has had one forever, like the big tech companies have. But I'm watching it happen down market as well and across verticals. I see it in pharma. I see it in the chemical space. I see it all over the place these days. Um, And I find it fascinating that what I see happening is organizations with infrastructure and resources will go out and find the next John Winner. Um, who may not have, for any number of reasons, either of those first two things. Um, but certainly the, the requirement of having both is, is fairly high. And they'll install them inside of, you know, basically, it's not it's not an accelerator in the sense it's like, ah, you have a thing and we're going to make it bigger. It's like, ah, you, there's nothing, start from nothing. I don't know if you've observed this trend at all, but, you know, you you mentioned that importance of entrepreneurship, but also the juxtaposition of being in that leadership position. And I'm watching those two things unfold quite a bit these days. I don't know if you've got any any musings on that.
2: Yeah, I'll say two things. First, before we jump into that, not just CEOs in big companies, but VPs, directors, and leadership, secondary leadership on individual teams. You know, I think a lot of the people who question things will actually be some of the youngest members in organizations. And so I think that, you know, the level of leadership and influence that you can have in those big organizations is super important, not just at the sea level. Um, but to to your point about watching kind of the big companies start to sponsor entrepreneurship and bring in these incubators. You also are starting to see some VC funds experiment with like, Hey, we know this is a good idea. Can we bring in a founder and build a team around that? So that's been interesting to see too. Um, I, I think that the way that I think about it from my consulting background of having worked extensively at the, you know, fortune 500 level, you know, as well as, you know, starting a bunch of companies myself and working with a lot of successful startups is you have two different mindsets entirely that are needed in different stages of the business. Um, And they're sort of opposite. Uh, I call it kind of a production mindset, you know, where we want to be very consistent in what we're doing. We're delivering a high level of service with minor optimizations that we're making over time. We're doing that based on data um, and that's kind of our production side of the organization. And then there's the innovation side of the organization, which is kind of the question, everything move fast, be okay if something breaks a little bit. Um, and you can't completely have that mindset when you have a massive customer base, right. Uh, on, on products that are live with them, even though, uh, you know, some companies might have that attitude. Um, it's not recommended. Um, and so, Uh, That production kind of characteristic and organization versus that innovation organization are are fundamentally different. And I think, you know, with the Google example to use yours there and Google X, I think it's essential that if you want those kind of new things to thrive, you need to put them in a slightly different environment and encourage slightly different things. Another great example of this is Steve Jobs and Apple, right? Right. Where he was notorious for when he wanted to do something new, he'd go collect the personalities that were right. He'd go hang up the pirate flag and, you know, kind of create his own little section of the office. You know, where he was basically a super well resourced, you know, uh, startup. You know, in that environment. So, that's some of my musings on that.
0: <laughs> since, since we're on the Apple topic, what do you guys? What are your? What is your take on? I guess what's your view on this whole, like, it looks good on the outside, right? Uh, for the consumer, when you have Apple with their privacy commercials, they're really creative, They're funny, um, Mm -hmm. you have the, 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 the iPhones are where the, you know, it asks if you wanted this, this app to track your data, you can say, no, is it, is it more of like a sleight of hand? Is it more of like a, Hey, we're going to make the consumer seem like they're in control, but really we're still in control. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's the case?
2: I think a lot of the complexities around that topic are around who Apple's biggest competitors are and how are Mm. they giving themselves a competitive advantage or disadvantaging their competitors being, let's call it Facebook and Google around some of the devices area and some of their biggest profit units being the digital advertising, right? And you've seen just in their stock prices, you know, kind of the impact, you know, of, of some of these changes that have come in. Um, I think that fundamentally, when my iPhone first asked me, like, it gave me more options to allow me to control how much the app tracked me. I was pretty happy about that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think that that level of transparency and like, hey, okay, you can track me when I'm using it because, look, you're a mapping application and you need to know where I am. Versus, like, hey, this is a little, right. you know, game I have on my phone or a notes app on my phone. You don't need to know where I am. What are you doing with
0: that data, mm-hmm. right?
2: Why are you selling that um, or accessing that, right? Um, I I, I kind of like it. I think the commercials are funny. I think the overall strategy gives them a major competitive advantage because there's also the really big difference between, you know, Apple wanting people on an app versus Google wanting people on a browser, which is a really interesting thing to think about. You know, what's the main operating system that people are using and and things like that? Where do you place advertising? So those would be some of my thoughts
1: there. If advertisements show up in my operating system, I promise you, the year of the Linux desktop will officially arrive. Like we've been (laughs) been touting it since 1992, three, four. Like it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. (laughs) no,
0: (laughs) no. Copy that. Yeah. Well, John, do you have anything else that uh, you want to bring up before we move on to our final round of uh, fun questions?
2: This has been some awesome conversation. I've I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed your guys' perspective on, you know, data and trends, and um, I've had an awesome time. So just a big thank you for having me on and uh, really
1: enjoyed it. Look, no, the pleasure is ours. We're we're not done yet, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sign you off. But uh yeah, no, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yes. Um
0: absolutely. so let's start off since we're on the topic, we're talking about apps. What is one application on your phone that you absolutely hate but you have to use? Oh.
2: Um, well, uh, that's pretty interesting. I don't know if there's any apps that I absolutely hate, um, would be my first reaction, uh, that I, well, have I get to the use. or
0: that most annoy you, but you have to use them.
2: Well, okay. I do have one slack. Uh, um, mm. and so, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I think that it really perpetuates a few problems in the organization. And I am actually pretty passionate about this. Um, and, uh, I think that first of all, it's another very disorganized place where a bunch of conversation and data lands. And so it's difficult to search. Um, and I think it also, I think it's really important in organizations to give people the opportunity to solve their own problems. And sometimes with the instant messaging, not everything needs to be an instant message. And so that's one of the things I really work on training our team with is, you know, can you figure it out yourself? Do you need an answer now? Should you use email instead? And I think Slack is a is a big distraction. I do think there's some pros to it. I think it can help create community in organizations, but I that would be one that would kind of fit the bill for me. Um, so I think there's a, it's also owned by one of our biggest competitors. So that doesn't help. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, it's, you, you have a point there. I, I think it is, it, it's exactly what it is, is a, a distraction it's just like anything else where you can communicate and get notifications uh, it was designed b- because of that it was designed to communicate and and be triggered by mm. the notifications and it can be used as a useful tool but in the sense it's i think it i, I agree with you i think it could be
1: overused and um not in a good way we're not meant as human beings to communicate with this many people asynchronously in those Mm. periods of time. It is, it is purely unnatural. Um, You know, my inner technologist does not like to solve human problems with technology. When I say human problems, I don't mean problems that humans have, but like inherent limitations of humans in in particular. And, and Slack doesn't make for a good exoskeleton for all of those reasons. There are other ways I think, that you can solve for that challenge. But I'm not sure that Slack was meant to solve for that problem in particular. But I, I only weigh in with that particular response because I have a, I also have a strong bias in this. In fact, um, built a chat bot. I will, I didn't do the actual building of it, but my, you know, my co founder built a chat bot. With, for our product product for exactly that reason, right? Like it, all of that information that comes in and that we're all trying to figure out what customers' needs are um, have similar challenges. I promise you, John, it is wholly not competing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but that's part of the problem is when you apply technology incorrectly or to the wrong human problem. You just end up with these compounded human problems of like, oh, look, now I have more messages that I knew what to do with. And that's now completely unstructured and it's asynchronous. And it's from like a bunch of people and there's documents attached to it. I'm not following any of that. that. And then you want me to remember what happened two weeks ago in that Slack channel. It's not going to happen. It's not going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. Nice.
0: I do miss Slack, though, um, organizational-wise, because we switched to teams, which I think naturally most organizations that have a, a Microsoft account makes sense, save money. What
1: if I told you I did the opposite? <laughs> oh, jealous. But I have a chatbot that'll clean that shit up for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Um, all right.
0: Trick question or maybe it's not. Tom and Jerry. Which one's Tom? Which one's Jerry? Because I, I don't even remember, but it just popped in my head and I, I can't remember which one Tom was and which one Jerry was. <laughs> Gentlemen, you've tuned
1: in today for the important question about the uh, <laughs> premises. That's
0: a really
2: funny question. I really have no idea. Um I know, right? Like who's chasing who here, right?
1: Um everyone knows Tom is the guy who owns the house. <laughs> is it though the animals have no real names oh.
0: they're not tom and jerry i have
1: no freaking clue is that the twist No, i don't know i'm just making shit up. <laughs>
2: i think that, I th- yeah that's a good question <laughs> do they get named but uh yeah i, I have no idea I'll go with jerry's the mouse um
0: uh,
1: <laughs> well, i didn't i didn't google it for a reason it because feels like, right a jerry's these... a diminutive name so if i had to guess that that'd be that'd be my guess Oh, and Tom's a Tomcat. Is he a Tomcat? Is that what's going on there? Maybe let's see. This is is heading down into very, very deep, deep. So Thomas Jasper, Tomcat, senior. He's got a family name, Jasper.
0: (laughs) There we go. So Tom wow. is the cat and Jerry is the the mouse. There we There's go. There's a Tom cat. Who 50, knew?
1: 50 chance there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lucky. Well, are there, hey. better, Chad, there are really better odds than those though? Like, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but hey, I just, I, we just all learned something new today um, mm. from a cartoon that we watched when we were kids. Indeed. Um, so I'm interested to, to get your take on this. This is a, a question that I use often, but I, I love it. I think it's fascinating to hear someone's perception on it how would you describe the color yellow to a blind person
2: Ooh, that's interesting i would say that it is warm and welcoming and enjoyable and we'll leave the yellow light metaphors and any caution
1: that, that makes out of the description.
2: <laughs> yeah. We'll describe it positively
1: kind of relating to the yeah. sun. If it makes you feel any better. I don't, I don't think anyone under 18 listens to this show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so either, nice. but if you are
0: out there and you're under 18, thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for you
1: joining us today. It's uh, good to have you. Yeah. Go start. Um, that business.
0: Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's say, let's say you had a chance to have your own movie and you had someone, you had your choice who could play your, like a movie about your life or whatever, who would, who would star you as the, the, the star and what type of movie would it be?
2: Okay. Well, first of all, Christian Bale was my favorite Batman. So, you know, we're going to have to go with that. Um, so love the dark Knight trilogy and, he also does such a good job of getting into his characters across his entire range, so yeah, that would be an honor. Good-looking dude too, so not going to
1: hate that. <laughs> oh, um, there you go. No hate. No hate.
2: No hate. It's a good choice. Uh, as far as as what type of movie would it be? Um, I would like it to be a movie where the main character is taking on really big challenges, and ultimately it ends up happy. Um, you know, with challenges accomplished and kind of. Uh, you know, I don't know what, what drama category, but uh, some comedy, some fun, you know, uh, okay. That that's kind of what I'd go towards. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in the middle there, it would be, you know, it would be difficult, right? You'd have to really go through it, do the investment. Because, I mean, that's what it takes to do things that, at least from my perspective, to do things, the really hard things, you know, require a lot of effort. And so, you would kind of go through that journey. That's what I yeah. think
0: would be worth it. There's a term for it in movies. What is it called again? Is it the, not the cliffhanger? It's the, uh, the there's a term for it for, where there's mm-hmm. typical like uh, down, where there's a moment where things are good and things are not good at all. And then there's like the uplifting ending of the movie where things the overall work out.
1: The I forget what it's I don't called. Know what the middle is. But what you did, the last piece would be the denuma. <laughs> That's kind of when you get over the hill and you got the big, ah! It's the French word. Um, I don't know. What do I, I don't know what the, I'm sure the middle is probably called middle. I have no idea. Um, I think you might be thinking of the Dinuma of which we are soon approaching uh, in this show.
0: That is that, yeah. That does not sound like anything no. I would ever know. Yes. Now you, you mentioned, you mentioned um, um, Christian Bale and I just saw the newest um, trailer mm. for the new Thor movie, which looks awesome i don't know if you're into the marvel movies but this movie looks really fun um have you seen it yet where it shows christian bale as the bad guy he he took on another like he lost a lot of weight again and i didn't even recognize him until it like zoomed in but i'm excited more than ever i forgot he was going to be in it
2: i'm a big fan of the marvel stuff as well uh did not i saw my first ad last night for i think love and thunder is what they're calling it or whatever so fun. Um, definitely a big kid when it comes to all the superhero movies, um, <laughs> and, and enjoy those, find them to be relaxing. Um yeah. so I, that'll be awesome to see Christian Bale on that too. So I'm excited. Honestly,
0: those are the only movies that I really care to actually watch nowadays because I'm more interested in TV shows are, are better than movies nowadays. They're just, the the way they create them. They're, they're more, they put more money into them. Um, there's more character building. There's just it's easier to get invested in something that you don't have to spend three hours in. And, and movies are not as rewatchable nowadays. I remember I used to rewatch movies when I was younger and I don't know if I'm just getting older or, or movies are just changing and they're just not as good. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but the Marvel movies, there's something about them, man. They just, they have everything all in one that just suck you in. It's, People that aren't even in Marvel will still watch them and enjoy them, even if they don't understand what's going on. So it's,
1: um, yeah, oh, it's just crazy. I enjoy them. I mean, they've got the benefit of, you know, decades of backstory and amazing writers like, decades of amazing, writers. yeah. Decades of amazing fans that have put in some hardcore, like fan fiction work, and like they they keep the writers on their toes. So, like, you want to talk about having a product that's been that has been through the customers' hands a billion times and back to the shop again to to really get it right before you put that first movie out? Like, there's there's a little bit of an advantage to that for certain. Are movies getting better or worse? I don't know. I, I'll let John take that one on. Ooh,
2: that's a good one. Um, I, people are going to say, yes, they're getting better. And yes, they're getting worse. I generally, uh, I think they're probably, that's probably both true, but I like to look forward optimistically and I'll say like with Ant-Man, for example, I had never seen that type of action sequence before where the shrinking, the getting large again. So, I mean, we didn't have that 20 years ago. Honey,
0: I shrunk the kids, but it wasn't like that. man (laughs) <laughs> I know, but the, like, but back then it was ahead of its time, but I know what yeah, you mean. I, yeah, I, agree. I agree.
1: It was very cool. Rick Moranis, <laughs> now you're cheating. Like movies have never been that good again. Like that's as good as they're going to get. That's as good as they're going
0: to get. Yeah. I, I, it probably sounds like we're like, you know, our dads when our dads used to say certain things back in when they were younger, that they're not the same. They're not as cool. I feel like that just is a, something that always con- is like a continuation Um, even though I don't really think music in the seventies or eighties was as good as, Ah, um,
1: yeah, nineties and two thousands speaking, pop music is better today than it ever has been where you could argue like classical music, you know, like minor improvements incrementally maybe, but like popular music, like actual pop music is infinitely better than what it was.
2: I have a theory on this music thing, actually. Um, that people whatever music was playing when they were in college um, or college age you know kind of that late teens you know early 20s you know that's the music that they resonate so many good times with and so that ends up being their favorite music genre for the rest of time and that creates a lot of interesting debates that will never be solved between people of different (laughs) ages and generations Uh, but I think it all ties back to kind of you know, what they were listening to in in that very formative and fun part of of their life.
1: Let me go on record as stating that anyone who was in college when polka music was popular, (laughs) they're still wrong. Sorry. They're still wrong. Sorry.
0: (laughs) You know, that I agree with that because as, as human beings, we are uh, creatures of habit, right? And things, music has such a strong, it's just like it's universally it's it's just it's something that can touch everyone no matter what because of the sound and the memories that come back cuz we're all we're all triggered by things as we're as we grow and and develop and uh, we still deal with those triggers so when you have something as simple as music can bring those triggers back someone yelling at you can bring a trigger back from your past so yeah i believe in that 100% And that's probably why most of those, most of us are saying, like back in the 90s and the early 2000s, I can, I I have a better uh, connection with that music with like the the emo scene back then with the the emo music and stuff. Because I don't know, it was just like, I don't, there was the grunge, but then the emo scene came after that and it was, uh, it just resonated with me way, way more than the grunge. Um, I don't know. That's, it's fascinating to think about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, well, John, man, thank you so much. This has been, this has been great. I, I really appreciate, you know, your time, your, um, your insight for what you do for your entrepreneurship. It's, it's, it's super, um, I just think it's super, you know, exciting and and uh for others that are you know have that same mindset or have been scared to want to do something like that this is a great episode for for them to listen to and um it's just inspiring and you know thank you for for coming on again and, and taking the time to be
1: with us I, I had a great time
2: absolutely thank you cameron thank you gabe this was awesome
1: john it again i sometime. genuinely appreciate you coming in i owed you a special thank you as well again so um <laughs> Really appreciate Absolutely. it. Hopefully, we'll have you back on again soon. Are you still
2: in the uh, Florida area? Would love that. Um, we are headquartered in Austin now, so uh, most of my time is spent there. But my family's still in Florida, so get
1: right back on. there as much as I can. Right on. Well, stay.
0: Let us know when you come back down, yeah, man. We're in Tampa. We're this way, yeah.
1: Okay, stay cool. We're cool. in Austin though, and if uh, if I find myself in the area, I'll definitely look you up.
0: Awesome. Wait. Time right. out. Time out. So wait. Do you own a cowboy hat?
1: You're asking me? And how many gallons?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so when I, I came to the University of Texas, and yeah, the answer is yes, but we're getting to the story. Here. <clears throat> it took only about four weeks from the moment I landed my regular shoes on the ground in Austin, going to the University of Texas for them to outfit you with your first pair of boots and your first cowboy hat. Um, now, how many times has the cowboy hat been worn? once for a mandatory picture and then it sits on a hook, you know, <laughs> on the wall. Um, and, but the boots are actually, they come in handy, uh, more often if you're ever doing stuff outside. So, so yeah, yeah, that's a story for another time. I have a good boot story. Um, I'm super,
0: super jealous. Nice. I, 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 <laughs> I, want, I want, I want to be a cowboy after watching the show Yellowstone. Like I just want to, oh, yeah. <laughs> I want my own cowboy hat and
1: boots and nice big ranch. Mm. Be pretty cool. All right. You should go That's watch fun. CD Slickers and then tell us if you still want to be a cowboy. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> it's also a good movie. <laughs> yeah. There you go.
0: Is that the one with uh, the two guys? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Technically, <laughs> great, but yeah. Um, I think I'm thinking of another movie. I'm thinking of another movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Billy Crystal. Old school. What is this like? I know you are talking about. Okay. 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's uh yeah go look it up it's beautiful okay you'll love it Billy Crystal, right. awesome awesome John a pleasure I can it's good to see you bro you too we're out of here next time
0: thanks for tuning in to privacy please this podcast is brought to you by Spirion protecting what matters most if you guys want to keep hearing us and supporting us, please, please, please email me at Cameron.ivy C-A-M-E-R-O-N. at spirion, Spirion.com. That's C A M E R O N dot I V E Y at S P I R I O N dot We would love to hear from you, new topics, guests, all that good stuff. Support us. We love doing this every single week and we hope to continue. Thanks again for your support. And again, Cameron Ivy, over and out. All-around decent guy. See you next week.